we had to survive the initial onslaught of the COVID stuff and get into a model that worked. We've proven that that model does work. Oh, and by the way, it's better than having to sit in traffic and make yourself miserable to physically go to the office. But we have to have a security strategy that aligns to enable that collectively. And that that's one of the big difference makers that this makes. And um, for me, when I look at ZT, I never looked at it from the perspective of an enterprise defender because I always thought defense was kind of comical, to be perfectly frank. As a, as a red teamer, like as a guy that did operation stuff, I've never found an enterprise that their perfect defense was really that perfect. When I looked at it from the red teamer perspective, I was like, oh, well, if they did those things, it would make my life really suck. And that's when I started to go, okay, now I see the value proposition of this because it's not about perfect defense. It's about removing what the adversary needs to be successful. Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of the SSE Forum. The SSE Forum brings together people like you, the IT practitioner, who are conquering the biggest challenges in networking and security. Together, the members of the forum share strategy, uncover requirements, and discuss best practices for enabling the modern workplace through security delivered at the network edge. To learn more about the SSE Forum, go to ssceforum.com. IO. This podcast is sponsored by Access Security. Access Security secures the modern workplace. They make access to resources and applications impossibly simple and completely seamless. Take the Access 29 minute challenge. See how easy secure application delivery can be. Learn more at accesssecurity.com. And now, on to the podcast. Welcome to volume two of Breaking Down Zero Trust. Today on our Mount Rushmore, we're talking with Dr. Zero Trust, aka Chase Cunningham. Hear how he started his journey and the advice he has for people getting started in IT security. Enjoy the conversation. Um, this is actually a special edition podcast in, in a series that we're doing. Um, and today I'm really honored to speak to uh, Chase Cunningham. Um, for those of you that don't know, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation on his background and how he got into IT and security. And then we'll just have a, a, a wild conversation like we usually do. Um, so, Chase, I'd be really interested in, in kind of hearing your story about how you kind of got to where you are today. Well, um, the, 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 the short answer is I've just been extremely lucky that other people have, you know, helped me out along the way. And then there was also kind of just a calamity of errors I happened to capitalize on, um, to be perfectly frank. I, I, uh, I would say the, the, the turning moment in my exposure to IT was um, involved me in the U.S. Navy uh, commandeering a laptop I wasn't supposed to have, reconfiguring a piece of equipment I shouldn't have touched, and being found out for doing something that was essentially illegal. And instead of sending me to Leavenworth, they figured I might have some value and uh, put me into the cryptologic services. So, you know, like I said, calamity of errors that I happened to capitalize on and good people realizing that there might be some use for me at some point in my life. 
Yeah, I saw from your LinkedIn that you went into the Navy and you did firefighting and other stuff, right? Is that? Yeah, I was. A, yeah, I started out as a diesel mechanic and I was a, a, a fire responder and those types. I was I had nothing to do with IT at all. OK, so once you got found out for taking the laptop and doing what you shouldn't do, did that then lead on to you kind of getting a job in IT? Is that kind of the way it worked? Yeah. Um, so it was when I was doing all the unscrupulous things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And I mean, it was really serious. Like I literally called my mom because I was 20, 23 at the time. And I was like, Mom, just so you know, I may be going to Leavenworth. I mean, it was a, a serious deal, but um, luckily they you know saw an opportunity there. So I wound up um, moving from uh, converting is what we called it in the Navy from being an engineman to being a cryptologic technician. And they sent me to Pensacola, Florida and put me through two years worth of school in five months, um, which is typical, you know, Navy education system, drink from a fire hose while underwater. So I'm assuming that wasn't the first time you ever touched a computer. You, you... No, um, when I was in high school, I grew up in a little farm in town in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Um, we had a computer lab and the lady who was our typing and uh, typing teacher was told to set up the lab. And she was such a nice lady. I didn't know anything about IT, but she needed help. So myself and two other guys, we spent all of our time reading through manuals and looking up whatever else. And we helped her set up the computer lab. But that was that was kind of my exposure to it. So I'd done some really basic networking and, you know, connectivity stuff or whatever. But that was it prior to um, the military. So obviously, when you obtained the computer and did the thing you did, was was your intention to end up in a job in IT or were you just a little bit of a naughty boy? <laughs> oh, my! like everybody else uh, in, in any space, my intention was to make my life easier because the piece of gear that, that we were working with um, had been configured by a bunch of contractors from a, a government contractor and they had said everything wrong. I was an operator. I knew what this system was supposed to do and it just kept like, erroring out and I was the guy that had to wake up and go manually fix the system and I, I just I was like I know that this is wrong and I know that those you know people screwed this up so I went and changed it which according to regs was illegal and wrong but it works <laughs> it worked like a champ so <laughs> so obviously after you went off and you did your training did you stay in the navy stay in like cyber yeah, so I went um, on the on the operational side of cyber, um, and I was uh, I did another uh, almost nine years before I got medically retired, and then after that, I went from the Navy active duty to working for the government three letter agencies, and then from three letters, I went over to force to research after that. So, when did you first kind of hear of the zero trust kind of? I'm going to call it a strategy because John called me yeah. out on the previous call when I called it a philosophy. He's like, no, it's a strategy. So when did, when did that kind of come about? Uh, well, funny enough, John and I have been friends for a long time. And when I came out of the Navy um, and had my first sort of civilian job, um, John brought me on to the stage as uh, they had a thing they called hackers versus executives. I was the hacker. And at that time, that was 2013. Um, John was talking about zero trust and how this was a different approach to whatever else. And uh, he was not getting a lot of, you know, faithful looks at it. People were just like, yeah, yeah, defense in depth, whatever, blah, 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 new thing. So what? Um, but John was talking about that all the way back then when I was doing the hackers versus exec stuff. I was going to say, because 
I've been in 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 IT for 25 plus years. Um working for large multinational companies and and when I look back a lot of the stuff that I've done over the last 20 years has just made this problem bigger. I mean, I've literally spent most of my career joining sites together on global MPLS networks and then SD-WAN networks with lateral movement and lateral flow absolutely everywhere. Uh, I remember the day when there were no passwords on computers. You just went in and press enter. Or when they had passwords, they were blank or they were their mum's name, dad's name, sister's name, whatever. And the network itself was was there to make things easier, to, to make things flow. I mean, like I said, I've spent most of my career enabling companies to send data rapidly across their network, which is exactly how ransomware and all of these other attackers work. So the, the, the concept of zero trust or the strategy has been something that I've kind of been dealing with let's say over the last five, seven years without really knowing the history behind it or that much. I, I it, in, in the UK, it's not a thing that is talked about as much. It's more so now. But I mentioned to John the other day that for me, it kind of came around through the pandemic. It was people went home. There was this talk of east-west traffic. There was this talk of replacement of VPNs. There was all this kind of talk that came about. And it was only really during the pandemic when I was at at home not really going anywhere that I started to do my research I'm like other people are talking about this there's actually there's a strategy for this and I'd be curious to know like from your from from the US side are, are companies now latching onto it more is it is it a, is it a thing and and how do you see that going yeah, well, I, th I think I read a report today, actually, that um, uh, the adoption in APAC, which is an area of the world that people have typically said is kind of a laggard for cyber, they're up 27% in the specific adoption of ZT year over year, which is significant, right? So does that mean that they're all 100% ZT? No, but that means that if you talk to those organizations, one out of four of them are working towards it, pretty substantial. Now, in the U.S., um, the, the watershed moment came this last year when the Biden executive order came out and basically said on the federal government, thou shalt adopt zero trust. Now, the reason that that matters is whether we want to realize it or not, we all subscribe to how the federal government deals with cybersecurity for a variety of reasons, including compliance and whatever else. But in the, the most significant one is the federal government is the one who is actively engaged in realistic conflict in cyberspace and is being targeted millions of times a day. So if they're doing something, everyone else is and will move to that model because that's they're proving that it makes sense. Now, um, as the US begins to do, there's a trickle down effect, right? So you have big Fed that does it, you have big enterprise that does it because they have to work with Fed and comply, et cetera. And then over time, you'll see small and mid-sized businesses move into that space. Now, like, you know, before I quit rambling here, the last thing that's really driving this is, is exactly what you said, was the move uh, to remote work during the pandemic, because we had to survive the initial onslaught of the COVID stuff and get into a model that worked. We've proven that that model does work. Oh, and by the way, it's better than having to sit in traffic and make yourself miserable to physically go to the office but we have to have a security strategy that aligns to enable that collectively. And that that's one of the big difference makers that this makes. And um, 
for me, when I look at ZT, I never looked at it from the perspective of an enterprise defender because I always thought defense was kind of comical, to be perfectly frank. As a, as a red teamer, like as a guy that did operation stuff, I've never found an enterprise that their perfect defense was really that perfect. When I looked at it from the red teamer perspective, I was like, oh, well, if they did those things, it would make my life really suck. And that's when I started to go, okay, now I see the value proposition of this because it's not about perfect defense. It's about removing what the adversary needs to be successful. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, of the way we've changed like security on cars. I mean, we, it used to be back, in, back when I first had a car in the 80s, 90s, um, you could break into a car with like a paperclip. So they made it harder and harder and harder to break into cars. And then what happened was instead of breaking into the car, you broke into someone's house and you just stole the keys, right? So that reminds me a little bit of, of, of cyber. It, we, we created firewalls. They did their job as best they could, or at least, at least it made it a lot more difficult. So what did people do? Well, they just didn't break through the firewalls anymore. They just went in to the premises. They put USB keys in. They targeted ransomware, malware, all of these things to just get on the premises. And like I said earlier, I spent 20 years making their job a lot easier once they got in. Because once they were in and they're on one machine, oh, guess what? They can go wherever they like. Um, so I agree that, however, one of the things that does annoy me is when I first started looking up zero trust, I, I looked up zero trust network architecture. I'm like, ZTNA makes sense. Now people relate ZTNA to replacement of VPN. And in my mind, and this is where I got it wrong, I said to John, it's a philosophy. And he said, no, it's a strategy. And it shouldn't just be about remote access. Um, it should be about more than that. And it's just not a vendor, a particular vendor. It, it's, it is a strategy. And it does frustrate me because here we are trying to have a conversation and, and try and make it clearer to people. And then you've got people out there making it more complicated. So I'd be interested from, from, from your side, is there a particular place that you think on this strategy of zero trust where people can start or does it differ depending on where you are, what industry you're in, what country you're in? Well, I mean, the value uh, of any real strategy is that it's, it's something that's malleable to your particular needs, right? And I, I do a lot of talks with people and I sort of talk about like your personal fitness. Your fitness, Jay, is different than mine, right? We're different humans. We have different things we can do. Thanks to Uncle Sam, there's parts of me that just don't work right anymore, but I can still be physically fit, et cetera. You could be physically fit. My 75-year-old grandma can be physically fit, right? But they have to do things that work for them and they have to work within the, the limitations that their body subscribes to, which is what you have in the IT space. And that's the thing is there is no uh, biblical reference from some graybeard on high that says thou shalt do only these things and then thou art zero trust. But really what we're talking about is you have to understand where your risks lie, the real risks, not the ones that you think. You have to understand what is a value to the adversary, right? Not necessarily the value to you because this is not about you. It's about what they want. And then begin applying controls around that paradigm and do it long continuously over time. I personally think the easiest uh, thimble of water to boil is identity and access management. And that sounds kind of counter to what most people think, but 
when you look at the data, the statistics, the biggest thing that's out there is password reuse, compromised assets and logins, and then lack of multi-factor auth. Those are things I can put in place right now today that, you know, like you said, even the bad guys know I want to have username, password, logins without additional uh, factor. And that's how I begin to win. So, and I think if you apply that control first, just because it makes so much difference, the other things become more achievable. Um, if you have bad IEM, the whole system is is pretty flawed, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. We, we've done a podcast on, on identity before and talked about possibly that's like the precursor to all of these things. Um, one of the things that, that concerns me, and, and again, I was stalking you on LinkedIn earlier, so I apologize. Um, but I think one of the things we, we have in common is I think we need to educate people young, young people. I mean, every, no offense to the older generation, but somebody like my mum who's, who's turning 80 um, has technology, but is never really going to use it to, to that extent. The younger generation are picking up everything around them. They've, they've got phones, they've got iPads, they've got all these other things, any other tablets. So the, the technology is literally everywhere. Everyone's watching TV using technology. If, if they don't have a computer or a laptop or something connected, watches are connected, everything's connected. I, I personally don't think they understand the risks. And certainly it's harder for people of my generation to learn these new things, even if I've been in IT 20 or 25 years. It's hard when these new acronyms come along. It's hard for us to pick them up. Some of us don't want to. And even if you do want to, it's particularly tricky. Not that I think zero trust strategy is a tricky thing, but I think there's definitely confusion out there. I'd be curious to know if you, if you agree that educating the younger generation is, is a good thing. And, and also, if you are somebody in the younger generation, where should you possibly go to get information to learn? What would be your advice to you, say, when you were 20? Obviously, it would probably be carry on hacking this machine, otherwise I'll never get to where I am. Um, but I'd just be, be curious to know what, having somebody that's lived it and breathed it and kind of walked the path, where do you think we should focus? Yeah, I, so I think that you're you're in the right glide slope because the vector, or excuse me, the the kids that are coming into the workforce now they've been they've never had a day in their life without wi-fi they've never had a day in their life without connectivity they they categorically and most of them uh, and i think the statistics and studies back it up they're not really into technology as much as they're into the use of technology right they're, they want it to work so having them understand what to do and why it's of importance to them is critical to that however we, as the people that are slightly ahead of them in the career curve, should be making it where security and security operations are built into the user experience. They shouldn't have to, we need to get away from this practice of everybody has to be a security engineer. That's miserable, right? Like I, I run my own LLC. I don't know how to do tax stuff, but guess what? The software makes it work for me. So being able to do that is what we need to push in the security space. And these kids that are coming in, um, they get the value proposition of the security solution if it's integrated to the experience and it solves something that is a problem that they understand and realize. Like my kid, the first thing she did when she set up her Fortnite account, she's 13, was set up 2FA. When I asked her why she did 2FA, she did it all by herself. When I asked her why she did 2FA, 
she said, well, I don't want somebody to get my V bucks. And that was for me, it was like, aha, she gets it. And she read something from somebody else that said, this will help them not get your V bucks. And she did it all by herself. She had her phone, her login done lickety split. Call of Duty has 2FA. Uh, Nintendo Switch has 2FA. So those types of things need to become more native to the experience. We as the folks setting up these infrastructures need to embrace these approaches and make it where it's going to happen kind of whether they like it or not. Um, and then, you know, the older generation, I mean, really, like you said, they're, they're using technology. They're not going to be what you would typically consider a power user. So their risk level is going to be probably exponentially lower and they've earned the right not to, you know, be in that mix. Um, but we do have to be cautious about how we take care of them because they're the ones that are the low hanging fruit that the bad guys are looking for. My mom gets fished, I don't know, twice a week. So, you know, she's always texting me and saying, is this legit? And I'm like, no, it's not just delete it. I mean, I, I certainly, I mean, I've been getting those kind of emails for, for a long period of time. And, and it, it, it used to be one of those things that you would go, okay, this person in Africa said that I've won 10 million pounds. If I go over here and, and do yeah. this, right. <laughs> and there were typing mistakes. They got my name wrong, but it was really easy. You could look and go, this is just clearly a fake message. Now I get messages like, for instance, we have to fill out a tax return in the UK and it's due on a certain date. And I was getting messages from the tax authority that even I was like, my tax is due. I am due to pay. I am due to fill out these documents like tomorrow. Everything looks right. And then to get more and more and more sophisticated. So like you said, my, my mum quite often gets these kind of things and I certainly know people their age that have been targeted and have given details and have lost money um and I'm just hoping that as you said that the younger generation I mean my, my girlfriend's daughter is turning 19 in a couple of weeks she helps her mum all the time with tech like it, 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 they they certainly I guess are more aware of ransomware it's on the news it it's people are at least seeing it and hearing of it um is there any way you think that i mean i know of um of nist and i know of all those things but if you let's say we switch this from a, a younger generation type thing if you are already in an it career or a security career and you want to learn more about cyber zero trust ssc all of that are, are there any recommendations where you think people can go and watch videos or read? I mean, cause I've read the NIST document and it's not the greatest thing to read. I mean, it, it, it's very, it, it's long and there's a lot of information, but it's not the easiest thing to pick up at night and go, Oh, I'm going to read. So it's great for helping you um, fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything you think is simpler as a simpler way for those, for those people to kind of, start their their path well i i'm a fan of always working um you know downstream so i personally think it makes sense if you're really interested to go do a little bit of the technical reading because even if you don't necessarily understand and whatever else you get some of the the real thinking that's gone into those documents so i would say nist csf cisa those organizations that have put out a lot of that guidance the executive order that type of thing and then once you wake up from your nap after reading that then go look into a lot of the publications that are coming out. There was a great book by uh, Jason Garvis and Jerry Chapman on zero trust security. There was a good book by Evan Gilman on zero trust security. Uh, and then the follow on would be listen to podcasts and YouTube channels and whatever else um, that talk about that stuff. And then 
you know, make your own assumptions, your own assertions. So actually, I have here the book um, by by Jason and Jerry, and we're hoping to get them on as part of this series on a podcast. Well, they're great. Um, Because this book, not that I want to shout out too much, but this book is definitely easy enough to read and take some real world scenarios and explains them in, in a real kind of as a history of zero trust, where it came from, who's done it. And then, so I'm going to give him a shout out or let me shout out because it, it's good. And they did sign it for me at RSA. Um, okay. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. I, I guess, I guess I have a concern about all of this and a bit like we, we, we built a perimeter and we protected the perimeter with firewall. So people find another way. Is this going to happen again? Are, are we going to kind of implement zero trust, never truly get to zero because it's particularly difficult in some large organizations where there's legacy stuff? And, and are we just kind of helping people find the way in by fixing all the other things? Um, you make a really good point. And this is something that I remind people of in my workshops is your organization moving to ZT is good for you, but you also have to remember you're connected to everybody else and their dirty laundry is now in your hamper. So you have to also push these controls uh, out to that defensible area where you can keep management of what's going on and make sure that you're able to limit your exposure. Now, are you ever going to, like you said, are you ever going to be zero? No you're going to get close to what you would probably call manageable trust. Um, however, that just doesn't sound good in a marketing context. So let's just be frank about that. But really, the, the, the side of it that you're trying to get to is where my organization is not worth the time and effort of an adversary to, to do what they're trying to do. Um, and this, this is one of those places where a rising tide lifts all ships, but if you decide not to get on that tide, it's not going to be a good day for you because guess who will be the low-hanging fruit? Guess who will yep. be the slow gazelle? And that that's what you're going to wind up seeing is you will see, and you're already seeing it, organizations that have bought into this and have started moving strategically to this initiative, they're not showing up in the news. They're not dealing with mega breaches and whatever else, whereas all the little ones, all the folks that have said, nah, it's not a really a thing, why would somebody care about me? I don't need to do this. They're the ones that are getting ripped to shreds right now with things like ransomware and fishes, whatever else. So it's the proof is in the pudding, unfortunately. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I've come from manufacturing companies and supply chains are are, are, are a big deal. I mean, you, you've got people above you in the supply and people below you in the supply. And, and one of the things that, that we had to do was reach out to to that supply chain and make sure they were as tight as we were going to be. Because like you said, any weakness in that chain, everyone's compromised. And I also agree that everybody needs to invest in this and the people that are investing are going to be ahead of the curve. I guess I am still concerned that there are some organizations that, that maybe can invest or don't have that kind of money to invest and therefore they're going to end up getting compromised like the non-for-profit organizations in some of this. Um, but I also think it's a bit like if you add wedding to anything, it costs 10 times the price. Like a wedding cake is far more than a normal cake because it's a wedding cake. So I, I think there will become a point where, because right now security is relatively expensive a lot of organizations are starting from quite a low level of security. So there's quite a lot of investment that they need to do to, to raise the bar. And there are a lot of vendors out there that are making money out of it because it's 
raised up to the board level and it says security, so they charge more. I think when it becomes more commoditized, I think maybe the, the cost will come down. But I also think maybe the companies that need to protect the data the most, and this is going to maybe not be a good thing to say on a live podcast, but the companies that need to do the protection are probably the ones making the most money because they have the most stuff that's valuable. Um, not, not always the case, um, but that's at least my experience. I mean, it, it's great to talk to you. Um, it's great to have people on. It's great to share insights. Is there anything you want to add before we kind of wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I agree a lot with what you said, but I would counter that statement with um, the organizations that think that this is too much or too expensive or whatever else. You're, you're, you're approaching the problem wrong, and the reason I say that is, you can set your ZT infrastructure up with a combination of services that aren't necessarily very expensive, and it's not about the best of breed because best of breed has been ripped to shreds plenty of times over. Just go look at the news. It's really about approaching the problem with the mindset that we're talking about and then using what's available to you without paying through the nose for it. I, I have set up some nonprofit organizations and I do a lot of pro bono work in ZT environments and it didn't cost them anything more than what they were already paying for like G Suite or O365. Um, is it perfect? Nope. But is it better than what they had and will it make them a harder target? Absolutely. So, you know, you... You should approach this problem realistically, understand that it's not about how much money you spend. If it was about money being spent, Capital One never would have been breached. They spent half a billion dollars a year on cyber, right? So, I mean, it's it's not about money. It's really about how you approach the problem, which things you put in place and where you live. And the last point on that to kind of what you said as well, if you're going to the vendor and you say that you've got this problem, guess what? The vendor has a solution for it. Like if you go in and say, I want to drill a bigger hole, they'll say, I got the greatest bit you've ever needed. I mean, that's just how the market works. So approach it more from a perspective of here's what I'm trying to do. Here's where I see this going. What can you offer me that will help me leapfrog that problem rather than I need this to do that. And that that's a hard thing to wrap your head around, but there's so much value in it over time. So the arguments of we can't do ZT, it's too much money, it's too expensive, it's too time consuming. I categorically disagree with that. And the other thing you should remember is you have 30 years of failure that the other model doesn't work. Will you subscribe to a failed model and expect a different outcome? Yeah, I mean, you've made some extremely valid points there. I mean, it's clearly the model doesn't work. And like I said at, at the start of this call, I've spent most of my career following that model. And now I'm sitting here going, that was a mistake. I'm hoping there are other people like me that are also doing the same. IT people, funnily enough, we bring about a lot of change, but we don't necessarily like change. <laughs> um, I also think it's, it's valid that, because I have also spent a lot of my career trying to get the most out of the, the smallest number of products. Because if you've already got four or five vendors, the push over the last couple of years has been to reduce the number of vendors. And there's an awful lot of people out there that have products that aren't utilizing them to the best of the ability of the product. I mean, it may be that you can turn on MFA. There may be other things you can tick. There may be other things within that product that help you be more secure. But also I think one of the key things coming from a manufacturing environment is you may have crown jewels and you might want to protect them but not everything's a crown jewel. There may be parts of your environment or data on your network or specifics that you can just wrap that ZT around that area 
and then slowly grow that area rather than trying to protect everything. And I mean, there is some stuff that maybe you just don't need to protect. And there is some stuff that you definitely do. A lot of businesses don't necessarily differentiate that. And I think that's a problem. And people need to sit down and work out what the crown jewels are because IT teams and security teams aren't the people that should be doing that. We aren't the people that should be going, that's the crown jewels. We can assist, but the business really need to say, if we lose this, this is a problem. If we lose this, it's not so much of a problem. Try and put that in, in areas where you can protect it and then maybe start your zero trust journey in that area. What do you think of that? No, I mean, that goes back to the original piece that John subscribed uh, or prescribed years ago was know thyself and then work your way from the inwards and outwards and those types of things. I think the only caveat to that that I have from having done a lot of uh, work with organizations in this space is data itself, unless you have a really good understanding of what data you're using and the value around that data. In today's world, data is such a transitory, ethereal, dynamic thing that you can get lost trying to isolate and build that sort of wall around data as it stands right now today. If you, if you can, great. If you can't, try this. If you really apply the, the strategic concepts we talked about in ZT over time, you are isolating and segmenting and controlling the data by default. So the good thing is there's not a wrong way to do it, but you're either building the ship with laying the keel first and working your way around it, or you've got a ship that needs a keel and you can just come weld that thing in. Yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely a path that people are going to start to take. Um, I, I, as I said before, I think maybe in the U.S., maybe further down the road because of i think the federal government and what they've done and the fact that you said it comes down but equally that has a knock-on effect across the rest of the globe it has a knock-on effect to, to any military stuff we do in the uk to the supply chain there and it will it will flow down um, and i hope the likes of these kind of podcasts and these conversations and, and the work that you're doing and everyone else in the zero trust environment and all the noise you're making is really going to help people on that journey because I've, I've watched some of your, your videos and, and I've spoken to John, I've spoken to other people and, and it's opened my eyes to the journey that we need to take. And that's part of the reason why me and John are, are trying to do this. In, in, and I'm really hoping that if we have another conversation in a year or two years time, I'm hoping that people are a lot further down the road. I'm hoping it's a kind of, we've made a difference, you've made a difference and everyone else that's, that's doing things have made a difference. Um, so that's really it from me. I can't thank you enough about having this conversation. It's It's been real good fun. Um, like I said, I'm learning. I'm learning every day. I think everyone should learn every day. I'm, I'm, I've got gray hair and a gray beard, but I'm still learning. I don't think we ever stop learning. Uh, and I'm hoping this helps other people out there learn as well. Is there anything you want to wrap up with before we close? No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I think that the trends are moving in the direction we're hoping, just talking to organizations and seeing the the needle kind of begin to shift a bit. Um, but it's it's a work in progress. Like you said, you can't ever stop learning. You can't ever stop trying. And, um, you know, folks should just uh, wrap their head around what makes sense and what doesn't and then work their way forward from there. Thank you for that very much. It was great talking to you. Awesome. Thanks much.
This podcast is a production of the SSC Forum. Editing and post-production is provided by John Spiegel. Sound engineering is expertly conducted by Chris Danby. Food recommendations? Solely the territory of Jay Tilson. Thanks for listening, and give us a follow on LinkedIn, as well as on Twitter. Twitter.